This is one of those stories that only God can write. As much as I'd like to take credit for the brilliance behind what's about to happen, I can't. Uh, Every August, usually the first or second week, I take a week out and I go and I stay somewhere. I take a giant pad of sticky notes that I put on the wall at where I go. I take my Bible and I take a few books and I do some reading. I start studying and, and I simply pray during that time, what do they need to hear? What, what would you have me say to the people that are going to come in and out of Huntsville Christian Church over the next year? And so from that comes the sermon series. And if you walk into my office, there's another giant sticky note that mostly has titles and, and scriptures for each of the titles. And, and so for February, it was, it was on my heart. You know, one of the things we do as people is we collide. We run into each other all the time. And so I said, you know, we're going to do this series. It's going to be called Collision Course. And it's going to be how to experience God through conflict. Because our whole focal point of 2014 is experiencing God through all factors of our life. And, and so this month was how to experience God through conflict. And the first three Sundays in this month, I talked about um, Mary and Martha, and I talked about kind of relationship conflicts. I talked about David and Saul and how Saul was even, you know, spent two years of his life chasing David, wanting to kill him. I talked about that conflict. I talked about Abraham and Lot and and how um, their conflict about not having enough land and how throughout all these different conflicts, these were conflicts of the heart and of the mind. And, And I shared with everyone how as Christians, we can avoid or either work through these conflicts in just a better way and in a way that honors God. And so for those of you who've heard these, this series so far, you've heard me say a lot, um, no matter what anybody else does, we need to honor God. And, and so I'm setting all this up, and, and back in like um, November of last year, I got an email that said, hey, I don't know if you can use this, but, but here's a link to a website about these amazing people, and they've got a great story. And by the way, the amazing people are Jay and Catherine Wolf, and they're going to share with you here in just a second. Um, and, and so I looked at their story, and I thought, wow, that's really great. And I, I contacted the people. I said, are they ever going to be in town? And they said, they're going to be in town the weekend of February 23rd. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Because the title for today was Step In and See the Big Picture. And the reason that means something is because they're going to share with you today about a collision in their life. And, and it wasn't um, it wasn't because they were angry at each other. It wasn't anything they did or didn't do. It was a collision. And I realized in hearing y'all's story and reading your story and, and talking with you that we have people all over the world that have similar collisions uh, with life. And so I contacted them and I said, hey, would you, I knew they were coming into town um, Saturday to, to share with friends um, from your sorority. And I, I was going to try to say it, but I know I'll mess it up. So I'll let you do that later. Uh, and some of those folks are here today. And we're glad to have you. Um, but today, as we step in and see the big picture, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the unexpected And it was so fitting, in my opinion, to have this happen on a family Sunday because you never know what's going to happen with your family from day in and day out. And and as you listen to their story, think about where you are. Think about the unexpected that may be happening to you right now. And, And I want you to, hopefully, my prayer is that through all this, you'll have hope as you leave that even during those times, those times of collision, whether we bring them on ourselves or it's something that we had nothing to do with, uh, which is their case, uh, our God is still a God who means what he says, and he does what he says he's going to do. He will walk with us through every step of our journey if we let him. And so with that, I just want to pray, and I'm going to turn it over to you guys, and I'll sit down. Father God, I thank you for Jay and Catherine. I thank you 
for who they are to you. And I thank you for the lives that you've allowed them to touch and the places you've allowed them to share uh, about the work you've done in their life. I thank you for uh, what doctors called miracle, uh, things of miracle that happened in Catherine's body. And, uh, and we praise you for that. And, and with all that being said, I pray, Lord, that, that today, as they talk about their ministry, um, that you will, will just encourage us through their story, that we'll know uh, you're always with us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Write down hopeheals.com. We were going to have some of this stuff up on our, on our camera that no longer works, um, on our projector. But you can go to hopeheals.com and you can see the pictures and some of the things that they were going to share with you. Okay? Thank you. Jay and Catherine. Thank you. Oh, uh, good. Is it Pastor Fat Rock Ton- on Sundays? Yeah, on Sundays. Is that, what, is that how Okay, you, thanks, how you Pastor Fat Rock. <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> it's kind of fun to say that. <laughs> We're so glad to be here with y'all. Um, we are sad that there's no AV today, and we would encourage you to go to our website because it's really cool to see the pictures of what the Lord has done as you hear about it. Um, pictures from the early days when I was initially in the hospital, and actually before, for instance, when I was in that sorority, Theta taught Alpha, some, some of my friends are here, <laughs> and um, when my son was born, and then subsequently our, our lives now, and we'll share in a moment um, about exactly what happened, but before we do, we just want to share briefly about how cool it is that we're here today, and like you opened up, I'll let Jay share, but it's so cool, and just so amazing how the Lord always is working. The Lord's brought us into a, um, a season of really getting to share. You know, there's this sort of period we've had almost six years since our life changed forever, one day in April 2008, and now we're kind of in a new season of being able to really get out there and tell what the Lord has done, and tell about real hope, um, this thing the whole world is just dying to find, uh, because this is kind of a hopeless place that we live in, I think, and uh, what's cool is just time and time again, sharing at places where it just fits perfectly in kind of what God's already doing, so I love hearing that about what you guys have been studying, just about this world where we collide into each other and into our circumstances, and what do we do with that, and how do we pick up the pieces and the wreckage of those collisions, it's sort of a question for for us all, you know, what do we do when the reality of life really hits us uh, in all its full force? And where do we find God in the midst of the wreckage of the collisions of our lives? And for us, um, as Fat Rock alluded to, our, our collision was not, you know, one of our own sort of uh, folly or our own choosing, but uh, our lives, you know, in essence didn't collide with an 18-wheeler or something, but rather with something as microscopic as the tip of a pencil. And it's just kind of mind-blowing that, you know, in this really wonderful but fallen world we live in, our lives can be upended by something the size of a, the tip of a pencil. And in our lives, uh, that was uh, a malformation in, in Catherine's brain called an AVM. And it's a very rare disorder that she didn't know she had, and it was located in, in an area of her brain by her brain stem. And one day... In the Lord's, I think, sovereign providence and timing in our lives, it ruptured and everything changed. And Catherine's life went from new mommy, 26 years old, six-month-old baby sleeping in the other room to, in an instant, really hanging by a thread to life. And some of you today maybe have had your story 
look a little bit like that, maybe quite literally or maybe figuratively. Maybe, you know, you've really felt your life is hanging in the balance in, in real emotional ways and relational ways, maybe financially. And yet, uh, we're here to tell you a message of hope in the midst of those collisions, in the midst of the wreckage that we also find ourselves in. And what we, what we really like to say to any crowd we ever speak to is that it would be very easy to look at our extreme situation and story and think, oh my goodness, that is such a dramatic testimony or that, wow, I can't believe they've been through that. That's so horrible, you know, whoa. Instead of saying, that's actually my story too. And whether it's relational, financial, what, whatever it is, it's actually not very different. And I'm very handicapped, you may have noticed. I have terrible issues walking, my face is paralyzed, I have severe double vision, I can't hear out of this ear, my hand doesn't work. I have lots of physical problems on the outside. However, we don't think it's that different than what everyone else is actually walking around with that no one sees. I kind of have this blessing of putting some issues out there to the world, so no one's thinking, well, that couple's okay. <laughs> but actually, nobody's okay. Everybody's just pretending if they think their lives are all okay and together, and we've all got wounds. We've all had collision or will have collision. We know John 16, 33 is true. We live in a fallen, messed up world. And whether we recognize it or not, we're either coming out of a collision or we're going into one. And we, we know that to be true in our story, but we don't think ours should be this really like, whoa, story, because it's a story and it's part of a collective story. And it's all part of the ultimate story. So we don't want you to see it as this dramatic, untouchable. It's an example. And honestly, it's a really good one. I'm happy to showcase <laughs> this is a, excuse me, a powerful yeah. story of what God does with our broken, sad things. And that, that's really a blessing to get to share with all of you. But please don't hear it as, whoa. Like, their, their, their story's nothing like what I'm going through, because that's not true, and I think that would really be a sadness if you left here thinking that. I think um, a lot of good stories start where we're going to start ours, at our wedding. And um, I think it's kind of fitting today. We, we met when we were in college in Birmingham uh, at Sanford University, and, and so anytime we kind of get back in the neck of the woods or... Uh, yesterday we were at this sorority uh, event. You know, it just it brings you back to that, that time when life was really different. And um, instead of provoking sadness, it really it, it makes me think really fondly and with gratitude of the journey God's given us. But we did meet just down the road in Birmingham, um, I guess it's about 15 years ago now. Good night, yeah. we're old. Man. Yeah, can't deny it when you I, say I those numbers. Normally, when we do this, we have pictures <laughs> of our wedding behind us, and we're talking about this. And in a way, I'm always glad when something happens like this, and they're not there, because I look back and I go, "Was that us?" I mean, we heard a Tim Keller sermon recently where Tim Keller said, "All you have to do is look at our wedding pictures to know we're dying. We're dying every day, <laughs> slowly. Day. Death is happening." Anyway. So, in a way, it's good not. <laughs> have to see those and know we're dying. Yeah, we're coming up on our 10-year wedding anniversary. But yeah. that, that day in um, 2004, we had just graduated Sanford University and we're, and we're getting ready, ready really to go 
on a whole new season, a new adventure together. So we were getting married uh, in Athens, Georgia, where Catherine's from. I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, we had this wonderful, beautiful day. I, I don't remember any of it, really, because, you know, weddings are just a total blur like that. And um, <laughs> thankfully, we had a DVD that we watch every now and then and re- reminisce. But my dad, who is a pastor in Montgomery, uh, gave the sermon that day at our wedding. And, uh, you know, we're 22 years old, getting married, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, don't have a clue what we're doing or getting into and promising before God and the witnesses. And uh, yet that's sort of the ignorance of youth and, and sort of this blissful and awareness, you know, not really knowing what we're signing on the dotted line for. Um, and my dad, for some reason, he gave this sermon out of Matthew 7, and he's done a ton of weddings. And he said, I don't know why, but I really felt called to give this truth over you guys. And it's not something I ever do. But um, Matthew 7, the, the parable specifically uh, that he spoke of was, was that question of what kind of house are you going to build, uh, what kind of foundation are you going to build your house on? You know, is it going to be of sand or of, uh, on the solid rock? And uh, when the storms of life come, you know, not if they come, but when they come, if your house is built on something that's not firm and solid, then it's going to fall in the midst of these storms. And, uh, you know, in a way, it was a little bit of a downer sermon, right? You know, like, this is a wedding. What are you talking about? It's supposed to be happy in First um, Corinthians 13 and all this oh, love, gosh. and instead it's get ready. <laughs> storms Life's going to be hard. The storms are coming. Get ready. And yet, how cool is that? That at our wedding, his dad said, like, buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride. <laughs> and, I mean, it wasn't that long before it really was. Yeah. I'll take it from here. So after... (laughs) Proceed. You know know what? What people love about us is we're real. We're not not polished. (laughs) So there you go. Um, So we we got married in Athens, Georgia in November of 2004. Allison was there. And we moved to California. We don't really know why we moved to California. I mean, we, we, we know why. Ultimately, the Lord wanted us to be beside this hospital to stay in my life with this doctor on call the whole nine yards. It was amazing. And yet, in retrospect, I think we both just wanted an adventure when we were young. I'm from Georgia. He's from Montgomery, Alabama. And we said, I mean, why not do it? I was doing some print modeling and things in college, and my agent transferred to California. And he found out later as we were going that he got into Pepperdine Law School. So we just decided, hey, we'll start our lives in California. Why not? Makes perfect sense. <laughs> so we so we moved to California and had a wonderful um, first few years of marriage. We plugged in to a church immediately, which was pretty unusual these days for young couples to do, but we became deeply entrenched in our church and started leading a massive discipleship group that in its peak had a hundred members in our Sunday school class, essentially, um, that was young married couples. And we had a baby along the way, and um, we were living at the beach in Malibu. Now, okay, it was a married housing dorm, so it, it was technically the Beach of Malibu, but it was Pepperdine University's dorm room. So it was um, a Pacific Ocean view, but not quite, you know, a luxury villa in Malibu. But we'll take it. It was amazing, and we loved it. And um, we were very blessed, really just delighted with this baby that had come along unexpectedly. But my grandmother always says these things happen when you're married. Yeah. So, uh, so we had a baby along the way. 
And life was great. Jay was in his third year of law school, and I put James down for a nap, my six-month-old baby. Um, this is April 21st, 2008, and I went into the other room, began preparing a meal, fell to my hands and knees. My legs went numb. My hands went numb. I started throwing up. Jay walked through the door, which he says procrastination saved my life because he was finishing a paper he hadn't finished. So he he was able Sorry, to call 911. And 911, whoever it is, those people quickly came and said, you know, her vitals are, norm- are normal. Nothing is the matter, which means something is really the matter. So they rushed me to UCLA Medical Center where I remember leaving the married housing dorm and then the next thing I remember, as we'll share momentarily, is two months later. So I like to say I took a two-month nap and woke up to a very different reality. I mean, as each one of us sit here today, maybe you can think of that day, you know, in your life when you got that phone call or when the circumstances of your life just out of the blue kind of changed, you know, when you collided with the reality that this world is not probably for you, (laughs) that this world is not going to turn out and this life is not going to turn out maybe the way you really thought it was going to. And I think if you haven't had that experience, you will one day. And that's not to instill fear, but that's to instill um, a turning of our focus, not to the world, but to Christ who transcends, as you mentioned, John 16, 33, you know, we live in this fallen world, but we serve a Christ, a God who has overcome it. And that doesn't extinguish the hurts and the unknowns and the pains, but there is hope because of that fact. But that day, April 21st, 2008, our lives changed forever. And that was our first apartment, Catherine mentioned, the the place we, we started our lives as a married couple where we took our son home to from the hospital And uh, that day, Catherine was wheeled out on a stretcher, and she would never see that home again. And, you know, sometimes uh, we have to leave places and people without wanting to. And and what do we do when our lives take this drastic turn? But I'll never forget that day. I uh, ran uh, to grab our son, and I I took him, and, you know, we followed the ambulance down the hill. Malibu is about, you know, 45 minutes north of L.A., but the ambulance took her straight to uh, UCLA Hospital, and I mean, amazingly, we didn't even have a doctor really at that time. We're 26 years old, you know, healthy, no issues, and uh, again, the Lord guided, I think, the ambulance crew to UCLA Hospital, which I had no idea, but it's like the, one of the top hospitals in the whole world, and uh, like if the president's on the West Coast and he gets, he will be taken to UCLA Hospital. Uh, this was in our backyard. You know, we had no idea the provision that God had put up uh, ahead of us, uh, arguably even drawing us to L.A., one of the many reasons being to be near this place when we would need it. And um, what was even more interesting is that that day there was a, a neurosurgeon on call who's a little bit of a renegade <laughs> neurosurgeon who will take on some of these hopeless cases, a doctor named Dr. Nestor Gonzalez. And uh, Catherine came into the OR and was unconscious, of course, and they took all these vitals. And basically what they showed was that near her brainstem, you know, which is a, an important part of your body and your brain that is, you know, responsible for your heartbeat and your breathing and things like that, she was having this massive bleeding. And so much pressure was building up in her head that, you know, she began, uh, her brain began to be squeezed down into her spinal column, 
which is something that you know, you know, you just don't survive normally. So it was a super hopeless case, frankly. And um, uh, I, I remember coming to the ER and the doctor approaching me. I had my six-month-old baby in, in my arms, and you know, he said, um, "I need you to know that there's a high likelihood that your wife's not even going to survive the surgery. It's just, it's, it's that bad." And I'm so sorry, and yet um, I don't know why, but I'm going to give her a chance. Because, <laughs> you know, these things happen not in a vacuum, but in, in, in the context of hospitals and, and, you know, insurance. And he was putting him, himself on the line, this liability, it, to take over this hopeless case. Somebody even said, oh, he's a lawyer, don't do it, because he might sue you. <laughs> so I felt bad about that, but uh, I think the Holy Spirit sort of was putting our little family on his heart to give us a chance. And so um, the other beautiful thing in that moment was that I looked around in this waiting room and I was surrounded by my community of faith, my, my friends from church. Um, we didn't have any family out in California, but over those three and a half years, you know, we had created this new definition of family for that, that time in our lives. And, uh, you know, it was a Monday afternoon and people just dropped what they were doing um, at their work and they came to be by our side. And again, they came not, you know, to tell us, it's going to be fine. I'm sure she's going to be okay, and she'll be, you know, good as new. You know, they didn't, they didn't know that. And rather, they, they just gave me their presence, and they gave me their prayers and their tears. And they didn't try to make it better, but they, they wanted me to know that they were there with me. And it was over 100 people. Yeah, by the end of that night. Subsequently, UCLA has told us that the support system, all these Mm -hmm. people all along just doing crazy things like showing up everywhere, praying constantly in public places, created a new paradigm is the word they use. That they they are so drawn to our story because they've never seen community happened this yeah. way before. It was really powerful. And that's an amazing, I think, side effect. The body of Christ doesn't just minister, you know, to itself. I mean, that's, that's maybe the, the goal. But in the ministering, the world sees this new communal life together kind of thing, and they're interested to know what that's about. And I think the Lord was glorified through just people being with us. It was amazing. But that night... Um, the surgery is supposed to be eight hours, then it was 12 hours, then it was 16 hours, and the sun rose that next morning. It was April the 22nd on this new day, and, um, you know, that whole night I was just praying. I knew that this could be the day that I got that phone call, you know, that, that this really awful thing happened to good people, you know. Um, my dad being a pastor, I knew that that happens, and um, yet when the doctor came out that next morning, he said she lived. She lived, and we don't we don't know what the deficits will be. Um, she might be a vegetable. She might be paralyzed. She might, you know, have a lot of, lot of, lot of problems. But she's alive for now. And somehow, for some reason, as the sun was sort of rising uh, that morning, there was a little spark of hope that sort of blossomed. Uh, it was just a gift, I think, from the Lord. But you know, it was small, but there was hope. And I didn't know what we were up against. I didn't know what it meant to have, you know, over half of your cerebellum removed and to have all these intracranial nerves from your brainstem to be sacrificed in order to save Catherine's life. I didn't know what that would look like. And yet I knew that there was hope, that, I, that the Lord was there, that I didn't have to do it alone, that my community was with me. 
So from that initial ICU stay, I would, I would stay there and learn to breathe on my own again, get off life support after 40 days, which it felt like was very biblically significant that I was wandering in the wilderness for 40 days and then went to the promised land. Now, it wasn't exactly the promised land. It was the regular part of the hospital, but I was able to transition to at least to stay in the regular part where I would stay another two and a half months. So 40 days, two and a half months, and then I would re- move to a brain rehab facility that meant like a communal brain rehab facility, and I would stay there for another year and a half, relearning to eat, which I couldn't do, to walk, which I couldn't do, to speak, which I couldn't do, and sort of regaining my my life again. And after that ICU stay, waking up in the, the regular part of the hospital was very, very hard. It was, my brain couldn't fully wrap, wrap my mind around what had happened. I, it was in a fog. I, I couldn't process, you know, I have this feeding tube now. I don't eat anymore. I can't walk. And like a couple days ago, I was playing on the beach with my baby. And now I'm, I'm totally handicapped. I have IVs hooked up to me and uh, I'm watching my baby be cared for by other people, and and yet it's kind of fun. Everybody's in town to see me, and it's like it was just a very surreal time in many ways. And and I think part of that was just a blessing from the Lord of, of a, you can cope with this. And early on, I would obsessively ask everybody, "Why did this happen to me? How could this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to me?" And it was, I don't remember doing that, but evidently it was like a, a mantra of just a brain freak out, truly. And in, in his father's wisdom, his father told me very clearly, well, well, it's, it's obvious why this happened to you. He said, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he almost did, he almost died. But you're okay, and you're going to relearn to do everything. It's okay. Get out of bed and do it. And for some reason, it was like, you're right. I'm going to be okay. I'm going. And like what it was, was the deep truth of Jesus that I'd known since I was a small child that I'd never really needed in that way. We're all in there. And so I was able to get out of bed and relearn to do the things and go on with life and accept this bizarre new reality because deep down I knew at the core the truths of the Lord that were way beyond my current situation. Like, this is awful. Let's be real. I, I can't believe this happened. And yet, I, I know the end of the ultimate story. And I know that he will overcome the world. And this is broken and messed up. But for some reason, this is my assignment on earth. And what God has called me to is to champion this. For some reason, this is wild and awful. And yet God has said, this is what you've got to steward. So steward it well. This is the assignment I have given you on earth, Catherine and Jay. And that is no different than all of you. We've all got this thing 
to steward on earth. And there's some yucky stuff, likely. But there's also some great stuff. And and I wish I could tell you that moving to the brain we have was the great stuff. <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't by any stretch. Moving to the brain rehab facility was one of the darkest parts of my whole story. You see, I thought the regular hospital part was the, the would be the low point of having a mirror held up to my face and recognizing what had happened. But no, no, no. That was actually nice because I was isolated and I was protected and my fr- friends and family were there and that was it. So moving to the brain rehab meant I'm in this corporate setting with lots of other brain injured people. Okay, if you need perspective on why your life is not that terrible, I would recommend heading to your local brain rehab and you get some powerful perspective on, wow, I mean, people who have lost their cognitive abilities but who are looking normal on the outside, which is one thing I was dealing with, is friends now who are not there cognitively and can't tell you their name, but they look normal, so the opposite of me. I was also dealing up close and personal with this deep, dark undercurrent of death and that horrible thing between life and death, like helmets in wheelchairs because the brain isn't healing and they've got open wounds and three people died while I was in the rehab because they they, they were so bad off. They were near death and they, they died. I mean, very dark I, and scary. I was just thinking one of, the, one of the other deep sadnesses of this experience was when, when you're in community with people, many of whom don't have the hope of Christ in their life, and you're witnessing and, and walking with them during the worst imaginable circumstance. You know, to see that kind of despair is so heavy. And, um, you know, just trying to, to deal with your own issues and your own heartache and your own problems, but then witnessing oh, just the lostness of the world in this little microcosm of this place and people's just weep, you know, grown quadriplegic men just weeping oh, so uh, sad. over their life. And it was, it was a really dark time. And yet I think the Lord, you know, used in a supernatural way our desire to just be a light in that place. I hope to encourage people. And, hope. and I really was. It was kind of sweet in retrospect to remember that it's like, you know, I'm doing my aqua therapy to relearn to walk. And like, it's all 70, 80, 90 year old people and like me <laughs> and my swim trunks headed to my relearn to walk. And I think it, it was cool that I could really be a light in a very dark place in a very dark time. And, and that, that was the one comfort of that season for sure. It was, it was a very, very hard time in my life. And I never want to sugarcoat that because I don't think any, any thinking person is ever moved by, well, that was great, and let's put a big Jesus sticker on it, and that was awesome. Because the reality is, it was beyond horrible. And what God did through the horrible thing is the Jesus. But it was unlike anything you could imagine. And everyone asked if I had a despair moment, if I really felt hopeless, if I ever had a moment where I didn't want to live anymore, honestly. And I, I say yes and no. I never went there fully, but I almost did. And it, that was in November of 2008. 
I, it was right before Thanksgiving. My in-laws had flown into town, and I failed my eighth swallowing test. So I, they kept giving me um, x-rays to see if I could swallow food, and I failed again. And it was my eighth fail. It was right before Thanksgiving, and I thought I would pass it, and I didn't. And I went back to our house. Jay wheeled me back, and I cried a little bit. And I was in the back of this large room, and my sister-in-laws were all in town for Thanksgiving, and they were in the front of the room, and here they're able-bodied, playing with my son. And I'm in my wheelchair. My neck is still hanging on my chest because I can't hold it up. And I just felt another time, and I just... I can remember thinking, God made a mistake. There's no way God intended to leave me. Because you see, I'm not dead, but I'm not alive. I'm like at this terrible halfway point. Like, what happened here? He forgot. Because he wouldn't have left me in this terrible place in between where I can't do anything. My body doesn't work. And yet, I'm still alive. And, and could, could this be what God planned? No way. God, God wouldn't do this. And it was as if all these thoughts were, were sort of landing on me, is the best way I can describe it. I know it was supernatural. But it was like this wave of almost just deep despair, like, I may just need to go on and end this. And I never went there fully. But I was about to. And it was like, in, in that moment, I had this deep just realization, but it, it was definitely supernatural, of, of once again the same truth I'd known from an early age that God doesn't make mistakes and there is purpose in my suffering. And I just felt so clear. I've always loved Romans and Romans 8, 28, that he's working all things for the good of those who love him. And that Psalm 139, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means that AVM in my brain, since I was in utero, I, my mother's womb, like, it was there. He knew the whole time. He knew when it would rupture. And First Peter 5.10, that after I've suffered a little while, the God of all grace would restore me. And these deep comforts to me. And I, I love telling you that because he did that. I mean, I may not look like it to you, but I've been restored in every sense of the word that matters. I may not do anything perfectly right now. One day in heaven I will. But I've been restored because I'm not where I was in November of 2008. And God said after you suffer a little while, like there is a book in there, a little while, mm -hmm. then I will restore you. And the most broken, sad places was my soul. I just felt abandoned by God. My feelings were hurt. It was awful. I just thought, God, I mean, are you kidding? And he just filled me with, with hope, tremendous hope. And that, that was my main moment. And, and from that sort of moment of, of peace in it, it went up from there. I did get better. I learned to walk again. I learned to eat again and pass the swallowing test. And I went on, and I got to leave the brain rehab, which, praise the Lord, I got out of there and on to a new season. <laughs> and I think the interesting thing is you finally, you know, you have this light at the end of the tunnel. 
And I think on earth, when we get to sort of that, that new season in our life, um, it oftentimes doesn't meet the expectations that we even had for it. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that one day as believers, heaven will exceed every expectation we have. Um, but I think we still kind of keep putting expectations on this world and, and what's next in our lives that, that you know, are never going to be met. And for us, you know, we, we were so grateful to have had this period of healing, almost two years of working every day just to learn how to do basic things again, you know. And we were able to go back home. Uh, the rehab that she had been in for a year and a half was about an hour outside of L.A. So you know, we'd kind of been exiled almost, it felt like, you know, and... And we were out of our normal community, and it was just, it was a really challenging time. And so we were really anticipating going home. And so we moved back to L.A. and and found a new place to live and, you know, tried to get plugged back into our church. And yet, you can't go back to a life that used to be, you know, when you've changed so much, when things have changed so much within. Um, and, And that was a really hard transition for us. I think after, you know, we have these collisions in our lives and sort of hold the pieces of the wreckage back together, um, we have to redefine everything, really. And we'd love to just kind of go back to how things were, I think, and yet God says, you know, that's not what I have for you. I have something totally new. You're this new creation now. We've, put, we've cobbled the pieces back together in a way that would not have happened but for this crazy thing that's happened, this crazy collision. And yet... Um, I want you to see home in a whole new light. I want you to see hope defined in a whole new way. And, and so for us, that process, since sort of that emergency two years post everything changing, has been really about how do we redefine who the Lord is in our life, how, how we re- redefine home and hope and family. And um, that's sort of birthed this, this ministry in this new season of our life of of encouraging people in, in hope. And even as believers, I think we get confused with this idea of hope. You know, we, we oftentimes really do put our hope in, in certain outcomes, you know, really good outcomes, and, and in people even. And, and when those outcomes don't turn out like we thought they would, or when those people let us down or, or, or leave us or die even, then, then our hope goes with them. And yet, if we put our hope in Christ, we have this living hope that won't ever go away. Hebrews 6.19 says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And, and I, I love that image of, of, of sort of this chain being anchored to our, our souls and our hearts and, and the anchor itself being beyond the veil in heaven, this anchor of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we can look around us at, at the storms and we can see, you know, with reality that there is pain all around us and yet we can live anchored in something beyond this world. And that anchor has been essential since my initial ordeal. I wish I could tell you that everything just got better 100% since then. I've never looked back, but that wouldn't remotely be accurate. Since my initial life-saving surgery, I've had subsequently 10 surgeries, so 11 surgeries in total, and years of therapy, Um, several radical facial surgeries, actually. This is a thigh muscle that they put into my face, and I have a gold weight in my eye, and and even just deep pain emotionally since then. I, um, after having the stroke, 
relearn to walk, as we shared with you. And then summer of 2012, I severely broke my right leg. Now, for anyone, breaking a leg is awful, very painful. And yet, for someone who's been relearning to walk and put weight through that leg for years, it was particularly devastating. And I broke my leg. They had to do surgery to install a rod and screws, and I dealt with a year of pain before they had to remove the screws. And once I got the screws removed, then I finally recovered from that and took a bad fall out of bed that, that left me back in the hospital getting stitches for a wound. It was awful. And subsequent to that, just November of this past year, what year, 2014, so November 2013, I had an aneurysm in my brain that is unrelated, they think, but clearly I have issues in the, in the system. And they did a procedure to remove my brain aneurysm just this past November. So it wasn't as if we dealt with the suffering and now we're just in a new season per se. But it is in many ways. And that is part of the human condition for us all is that there are collisions and then there are other collisions and many collisions and big and small constantly at work. Um. In the midst of all this, I think as we share our story and share our hope and, and our pain, um, we don't want to forget a really important part of this. I think as we recover from um, the loss of expectations and the suffering in our life, the essential ingredient, I think, for pulling those pieces back together is to look outward, not only at Christ, but at this world who is hurting and so longing for real hope. And so 2 Corinthians 1 was really this charge we felt on our lives, you know. We don't want to just talk about ourselves and how, you know, encourage you how to, you know, how you, how you can feel okay by, by knowing Christ and, and consuming kind of hope, but, but we want to all be vessels, you know. I think it's so easy in this very individualistic, consumeristic culture that we live in to just be indoctrinated to this idea that it's all about us and how we're feeling and how we're doing and, and where we're at on our journey. And, and that's, that's one piece of the puzzle, but the, the other piece that brings it full circle is are we overflowing with all the things that we've been given in our lives to give others who don't have those things hope? And in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, you've been given comfort, you've been given hope, so that when you come in contact, when your life is intersected with other people in need, that you can give it to them that you can overflow with hope, that you can overflow with comfort and help those in need. So one of the big charges of our ministry is not just saying, you know, there's hope, but, but to say, take what you've been given and give it away. And, you know, we live what we call in this upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of God, where a lot of things kind of don't make sense by the world's standards. And yet, uh, when we give ourselves away, the Lord gives us so much more of himself in return. And that's been the joy of our lives and our ministry to realize, you know, in the giving away of our hope and the being vessels of what God has blessed us with and how he's encouraged us, we get to, to give that to other people. And, and we're not depleted in that process, but we're filled to do it again. And it's this amazing opportunity we have, even in the midst of the trials that we go through, to look outside of ourselves and, and to give what we've been given away for the cause of Christ in this world that needs it so badly. So um, that was sort of part of our message today, and, and we hope that the Lord and the hope he's given us 
uh, might have overflowed a little bit on you today so that you might overflow with hope in this world. And uh, we thank you for letting us be with you this morning. This is a precious, precious congregation, and we love everything you guys are about and what you're doing, and we pray that God would continue to bless you and, and that you would overflow with hope in this, in this city, in this region, in this state, and in this country, in this world, and, and the Lord is at work here, and we're just so, so humbled to be a part of it. But um, should we, thank should you. We pray yeah. or? Thank you. <laughs> thank you all. And we'll pray, we'll pray to close out our time. You want to pray? Yeah, totally. As, oh, could I say this? As, as he was saying, we, we love this notion of overflowing with hope. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, let me pray Romans fifteen thirteen for y'all. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all. Thanks. Thank you. I think he wants you to sit here for a minute. Okay, okay. We're going to have our response time, and, and we've been doing that differently here uh, for a while now. Um, and I just want to say thank you, because I know it's not easy to, to just open yourselves up to people you've never met before. Uh, but you guys do it really well. One of the things that, that I want you to know is when, when Catherine was in ICU, uh, a friend of hers actually wrote a song based on some of their favorite verses. Um, and, and one of those verses is where Jesus says to a little girl, Talitha Kum, rise up. And, uh, and she, she wrote this song, and they actually played it in ICU the whole time she was there. And then as, as she went into normal, I guess, the hospital room and heard that song, is, Catherine said, it was like I always knew that song. And um, actually contacted Liz, and she gave us permission to sing that song as our response song today. And during that also, because I know that they're not the only ones that have had these collisions. And, and we've had people in our own congregation. And so during this time, some folks are going to come up with some signs that kind of explain where they've been. And, and the whole focal point of this is that no matter where you're at, when you still cling to God and his strength, you will get through and you will continue to be a part of that big picture. And, and so that's what's happening here. But any time during this song, if you want to be baptized, if you need prayer, the elders are here. If there's anything, uh, if you want to partner with us and say, you know what, I want to impact this community, um, this is a time for you to make that response. And so with that, will you please stand um, while we sing and while we listen to this response song? What on earth? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you're here. Oh, Oh my goodness. That's so touching. Oh, my gosh. Did <laughs> uh, y'all know that? Oh, my gosh. My word. Oh, my gosh. You just moved. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> to take a I know I wasn't there when God created the sun, the heavens and earth. When he formed each life with his hands Made man and woman Only he knows our future But I believe you can be healed And I believe you will be well again You're in the hands of 
like the Father, my friend, that is Lazarus laid in a tomb, but when Jesus called, he walked out. The bleeding woman's life was restored by just touching his hand, because she believed in his power. And when Jairus' daughter was dying, her mother and family were crying. But Jesus said, Talitha Kuhn, little girl, rise up, that's our prayer, don't be scared, your life isn't over yet. If faith can move mountains, if prayers are powerful, then God can hear us, He'll are precious to him he knows your pain and he works all for the good turns our sufferings to glory that will never change and his spirit lives inside of you and with him there's nothing that you can't do so keep on fighting and win my friend rise up that's our prayer don't be scared your life isn't over yet if faith can move mountains and prayers are powerful then god can hear us and he'll make I don't know what collision you may have gone through in the recent weeks, months, years, but in the words of those songs, don't be ever be afraid to rise up and claim what we know is ours, which is a victory in Jesus. And, and there's two things I really appreciate about their story, and one is, is that <clears throat> Jay said early on, we will go through this, meaning we, and, and a lot of times in situations like this, Within the first six months, a separation happens, and then a divorce, and that person is left to go through what you've endured on your own. But, but Jay made a decision, and it's because of that faith family. It's because that's what is, is right, and I appreciate that. But the other thing is, in your video that's online, um, you talked about when, you, when they discovered the other aneurysm, and you said, I don't live in this box of fear. And do you remember saying that? 
because it's recorded. You said it. All right. And, and I was like, you know, that's the whole thing. Satan wants us, when we have a collision, he wants us to be in that little box of fear that doesn't let us come out beyond that. And, and I appreciate you guys not staying there and, and praying and, and looking for accountability in your friends and, and literally people around the world that, that you have touched them and they have touched you. Um, and so today as you leave, whatever collision's been going on in your life, don't be afraid to walk out of that and rise up and be a vessel for Jesus Christ. Y'all have a great week. Thank you.